Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, November 22nd, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. An associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. We are tired this morning. We are tired and we are going, we are incoherent, or at least I am tired. I'm incoherent. I'm using the royal we, which is probably unfair to my colleagues who seem to be much more chipper than I had a dog who woke up at 10 or 4 in the morning and demanded to be taken out. And uh, so I am the worse for wear. And so is the news because uh, there, there, there isn't that much to talk about unless, you know, we haven't really discussed the um, the horrible uh, shooting at the at the gay bar in Colorado Springs, um, and once again we find ourselves in a situation in which the leap the the conclusion that was leapt to is that people who are um, uh, skeptical to horrified about the about the sort of the increasing acceptance of. Uh, transgender gender affirming surgery on adolescents are somehow responsible for this uh event uh, inside the the club in Colorado Springs when the all indications so far that we have are that the that the shooter uh who is in custody um is a psychopathic uh you know violent psychopath who uh threatened to blow up his mother with a homemade bomb and the question of course that this rises from this is why isn't he in a hospital or why wasn't he jailed for this threat that the police were involved in and somehow dropped the charges so this is something else we need to figure out about these the facts that these people are often on the radar or you know in the in the are known to law enforcement and then they 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 end up you know free and clear to do something really horrible but uh the the effort to politicize these horrible events is um is really a just a, a terrible impulse and i don't say that just because this is something that you know the left does to the right when newt gingrich um tried to blame the democratic party and liberalism for susan smith the woman who drove her children into a into a lake or into a river in, in, in South Carolina in 1994, 1995, that was equally horrifying and disgusting. But here we are. Um, and uh, it's just, it's an addiction. It's an addiction to just say, okay, here's something out there that is upsetting to me. Let me use it to confirm my priors and advance my political or ideological interests. Well, there, there's an accounting balance sheet approach to this stuff that I think is, is I agree with you, completely uh, harmful for, for understanding why and how these things happen so that we can prevent them in future. And also just, just political point scoring. So you see, I mean, even, even the, for example, violence, political violence, right? This has been a topic of frequent conversation recently. And the Times, this, the New York Times this weekend had this long editorial about political violence. I thought, oh, good, they're going to they're gonna talk about how this is just a, it, we do not want to live in a country that descends into solving its its uh, political disagreement. 
And there was a little little nod to this as a cultural problem. And then it was just, it's all right-wing violence. Right-wing violence is a problem. Right-wing violence is a problem. And there's an attempt to actually measure which, what's worse, the right or the left. And that starts to get down a path that I think the media loves because they can point score and they can say the right's worse than the left. But in fact, there's there are broader themes here. There are broader, there are broader issues with mental health in this country. I think this might end up being one of those examples. There are issues with um, the criminal justice system being able to find, arrest, and and put into the system someone like this for a bomb threat and which involved the bomb squad and all kinds of resources. And then, you know, a year later, this this guy's back living at home making threats again. Like, why are we not following up with some sort of monitoring of people who clearly have violent, have expressed violent wishes? So there's a whole, it's a very complicated issue but it's just much easier and i think particularly for for you know the media types who love to get a lot of uh, retweets uh, to say oh it's libs of tiktok there was an nbc news reporter who said this is all the this is because of libs of tiktok pointing out the drag queen story hour in in a particular location that's ridiculous it's irresponsible and ridiculous for a reporter at a national news place to say that it's just wrong so and and by the way, all libs of TikTok does is post advertisements for these things and say, look, this is what's going on. So but but it's but it fuels a kind it fuels clicks, it fuels revenue. It's it's it there's a lot at stake here for the reporters who tend to do this. There's an interesting fake out aspect to it also, which is that when we see mass political when we've seen some mass political violence in, in the United States, like we've seen we saw Charlottesville, right? So that is right if that's what you want to call it and then we saw what happened after george floyd and that was mass violence in multiple locations and what happens there is that the violence is overlooked in favor of the idea that the violence is some kind of justified reaction to a terrible preceding event rather than uh something that needs to be condemned by everybody and the first thing is, whatever you feel, however you feel, you are not allowed to destroy people's property. You are not allowed to shoot people. You're not allowed to mug people. You're not allowed to shut streets down. You're not allowed to do that, that we live in a civil society. Then you express your discontent or your woes or your heartache in a different way through the exercise of your franchise and through free speech and all of that and you don't do it this way and the 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 horrifying effort to kind of excuse political violence that is like overt that is actually an expression of a political stance which is you know black people are being murdered every day in this country by cops and it must stop and all of that that is like it's on the nose it's right there it's not a corkscrew thing where somebody shoots a congresswoman uh at a at a shopping center and then you immediately say ah it must have been sarah palin's bullseye target on a website rather than uh it, it which maybe it, it could have been though it wasn't that's the whole point it turned out that jared lochner the person who shot gabby giffords uh had a um had a an obsession with grammar and language usage and this was some effort to express that um the, maybe it's too sorry i was just going to add the argument that the left would make to that john and i agree with you is to say and I've, I've had these discussions with friends they say well the difference is on the right elected officials endorse and use violent rhetoric so that they, that they're worse because they actually actively elected officials the party itself actively encourages violence and they point i think justifiably to january 6th 
But the idea is that the Republican Party actively endorses political violence when it's useful to it, whereas the Democrats are always condemning it. I think that's yeah, they, crap. That's not that true, but it is the argument that yeah, Kamala made. Harris, it's, it's, Kamala it's the Harris only... tweeted out the defense funds. Yes, for the Minnesota bail funds. Yes. Black Lives Matter. It's an yeah. argument they only make in mixed company. They wouldn't make it themselves because they do support these actions in their own rhetoric. Now, this may be too grand of a theory, but I, I would say that we're talking about two competing nihilisms, nihilisms rather. The obvious nihilism being the reaction, the violent response to conditions you perceive to be intolerable, whether they're, whether it's the product of an addled mind or not. The idea that you have these grand moral precepts and the institutions that should be responsible to responsive to your moral imperatives are not. So you resolve to attack the foundations of those systems and draw blood in the process. The counter reaction to that from the left that says, well, this guy is a product of his environment. This guy is a product of a society that is broken, that is deranged, that has created him, is nihilistic in itself. Um, they don't recognize it as such, but they work themselves up into this froth over the idea that people who are violent are not responsible for their own violent actions. They are products of their environment and the environment is to blame and the environment must be reformed or destroyed. And there's a fascinating one of the thing one of the reasons why I think the leap to the narrative happened so quickly is that you know who saved a lot of lives at the at the club was an army vet, a combat army vet who was there with his family watching these the one of his daughter's high school friends perform. And he like went right for the gunman, tackled him. Like they he actually is a huge hero, he saved many, many lives. And it was interesting when he gave an interview, interviews to media afterwards, he's like, you know, I didn't expect to have to confront this kind of violence at home. I, you know, I saw it in combat, but I also like, this is what I fought for so that people can live their lives and do what they want. So there was an interesting, that message, like the, the army combat veteran actually tackling the gunman to the ground. That's not a narrative the left really likes either, but it was fascinating to me to see just how that's real life. Real life is complicated. Lots of people from different backgrounds find themselves in situations and then have to act. And he acted, he saved many lives. He's a hero. Regarding the uh, political violence and what the left says the right does and what the what the left claim that they do um, themselves when someone commits violence in the name of a, of a left or liberal cause. One one of the things that that January 6th did was sort of get the left off the hook on this score. Uh, it allowed them to pivot and start pointing um, in the very opposite direction in which from which they were pointing. Uh, if we recall, just go back yet again to 2020, um, when for months and months, uh, uh, Antifa and BLM protesters were attacking federal buildings in Portland, um, the le what what left wing what what Democratic politicians were saying, including Nancy Pelosi, was we got to make sure that the, the federal officers don't overreact here. To quote Pelosi, they're coming in like stormtroopers. Um, they this is they did then January 6th happens and they did a 180 and they said, Oh my god, look at this, look at the political violence being endorsed by by the right, um, against our sacred officers and those that are supposed to protect us and and against our federal buildings and 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 so on. I, you know, I, I I'm struck by the I don't want to do whataboutism here because so and say, oh, you know, the left has they're violent too. But there is a larger theoretical or ideological point here, which is that yes, it is true that the right, broadly speaking, 
uh, believes in um, the judicious and moral and just use of force. That is to say, the right believes in, you know, the enforcement of, let's say, international norms, or a lot of people on the right believe in this through, and that that requires, you know, uh, strong military. Uh, we, uh, the American habit of thanking veterans for their service and saluting them is something that now is bipartisan, but certainly was not famously when the Clinton people came in uh, in 1993 to the White House. Somebody said to Colin Power, somebody said, you know, your time is done here. You know, we don't like all this militarism. So we have the military, then we have support for law enforcement. And the obviously that is the monopoly on the use of force that the that the that our society grants to trained uh you know trained and sworn in uh police officers to protect everybody else and that is seen largely as a just as a just thing because they're they're sacrificing themselves for others or they're putting their lives on the line for others and then of course there's also gun there's also the uh belief in the second amendment and uh, this believe in the Second Amendment is not just you know theoretical for a lot of people because it says so in the you know in the Constitution. It is the idea that uh, a free society, free people, have the right to defend and protect themselves and cannot. It, government is not government cannot be looked upon as the savior of an independent free person, particularly somebody who is living somewhere where you don't necessarily have access to a police officer or something like that. And self-defense is a hallmark of just sort of like the gut root of any civil society is the notion that you don't attack another person because that other person could come back at you in some fashion or other. And this, these are conservative values and they are not Wait. liberal values for the most part. You know, when Christine talks about the sort of uh, scorecard, aspect of this when when an event happens john your last point about guns you see that 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 makes every non-political event every non-political shooting can be then turned into uh a point for the left because they're the anti-gun people and and the right the right or the pro gun people so it, it it's automatically gets gets put into at least some political framing just by virtue of the fact that 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 guns are involved i mean look the 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 events that shock and terrify and horrify the soul in the realm of mass shootings over the last 20 22 25 years have not been political they just haven't i mean the columbine kids uh, Nicholas Cruz uh, at uh, at Parkland, um, Adam Lanza at Sandy Hook, Las uh, Vegas. Huh? Las Vegas. I mean, the the only one I think that we can point to that came in a, in the American terms with a manifesto was the was the kid who shot up the supermarket in Buffalo, and he Tree had a manifesto. Synagogue. Was, uh, Tree of Life Synagogue. Fair enough. Okay, but um, oddly enough, I mean, no that 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 is that is an ancient hatred. Tree of Life and Poe. That somehow that that transcends mere politics. Like that's you know anti anti Semitic killings have a have, Jew hatred killings have an entirely different flavor. 
I mean, they're 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 political in some broad brush, but they're but they echo a very old, some very old, uh, and and not well, just true of life and poetry. There's also Corpus Christi. There's Texas, Texas, Dylan Roof. Yeah, but I mean, mostly the the things that we focus on that have made us feel like there is something diseased in our society that is specific, specific to our society are these killings that by the very nature in an odd way in the fact that they're not political that makes them even more unnerving right because well and and that they're, they're also purposeless and we don't understand you know it's like it's an expression of evil naked but, raw evil but it's banal too because there it's it's there is a narrative about that particular kind of evil that doesn't encapsulate what most mass shootings take place in which is Inner city neighborhoods in cities where where you know drug gangs are fighting each other. My kid was just on lockdown last Friday in his high school because two warring crews were shooting at each other at two in the afternoon from their separate cars, like just shooting out the window at each other. And they hit a bunch of cars and the school's on lockdown for a few hours. That kind of thing happens in cities like D.C. and Chicago and New York all the damn time. And and mass shootings, at least by the definition, the FBI and other law enforcement use happen every day in this country. But what we're but but the sort of the the randomness for people who don't live in that in those communities is what I think is very scary. But we I, I really wish we would bring into focus just how frequent that kind of settling of grievances happens in a non-political way in some of our country's communities. It's it's killing an entire generation, particularly of young men. Right. So again, we have there something that is, you know. Old, almost like what I said about anti-Semitism. It's older. It's older than America, right? This is, or this happens everywhere. These are tribal, you know, uh, you know, uh, groups of people that go after other groups of people. You know, the in the American tradition. We we could say the Hatfields and the McCoys are the sort of the mythical version of this, rural, you know, nineteenth century version of this. But, but, um, you know, that is recognizable from other societies the thing that seems to be hardly recognizable in other societies is the schizophrenic psychopath james holmes like the picture of james holmes after he shot up the movie theater in um littleton is one of the scariest visuals one has ever seen i mean you just had to look into the face of him having his photo taken you know by the by the police at his you know at his arraignment and or arrest and um you know it is like looking into the face of evil uh and it's not just enough to say well he was crazy because there's something else there like there, you know again there's like the whole problem with blaming this on mental illness not that mental illness isn't a huge factor is there you know 10 million people with mental, you know, with like severe mental illness and they don't just like every, like, just like everything else, they don't go out and shoot up a movie theater. They don't go out and shoot kids, uh, at a, you know, first graders at, a, at a, at a elementary school, you know, they, they, they don't do these things and therefore saying, well, we have a mental health crisis. Well, we do. And it's very important to deal with that also doesn't answer it. Maybe there isn't an answer. Maybe it's a conflation of, or the concatenation of like 15 different forces in America that don't exist elsewhere, that are freedoms. This is one place in which building a society on human freedom 
um, uh, has a terrible unintended consequence. Well, and where the the to the to the earlier point you're making that we were when we were talking about Abe's uh, excellent point about the Second Amendment and conservatives and guns and how they can be blamed when these things happen. Conservatives also support the rule of law and support enforcement of existing gun regulations. And most of these people should not, if those laws had been ad- adequately enforced, would not have access to guns. The the people shooting each other in my city. Those are not legal guns. They should not have those guns in our city council. Just reduce the penalty for having an illegal weapon. So and and that's an all left, like really far left Democratic city council. So there are these these when the Second Amendment argument comes up, I get really annoyed because I most of these people should not uh, under the laws that we have on the books have had access to weapons, but they did. And then when they do get them, we're not properly prosecuting them. So those are issues that I think we should be able to find some across the aisle agreement on. But it's it's become difficult in this political climate. There's a practical question, too, when we're talking about this stuff, because the answer, which is an understandable and attractive political answer that has had a great deal of success, which is to say we just have to get the guns off the streets. These things happen. It's terrible. And it's odd, by the way, because most of this happened over the course of three decades in which crime as a general factor in American life practically vanished. People were much less threatened by weaponry, by guns, by things like that, that they had been, you know, in in the, the previous 30, you know, crime drop of, of, of 80 percent. Um, so we really were talking about exceptional instances of like horrifying crime, whereas America got inured to simply this notion that we were a country in which there were just going to be 25 30 40,000 murders or something like hey remember what the stats are and I, I i i i don't want to like overstate this but um you know and then the the murder rate just like got vanishingly small as was the violent assault rate and things like that and then we we were then we then focused on these you know horrifying incidents uh which are monstrous but we we're looking through the wrong end of the telescope because uh, enforcement of existing law, enforcement of misdemeanors that led you to find felons who were doing terrible things and therefore could go to jail like that made American life more civil, better, safer, Holding people and, in jail and, who, yeah, yeah, who who had committed violent crimes rather yeah. than just releasing them yeah. with no no bail and like letting them recommit re reoffend the minute they got if, out. <laughs> if you imagine that the that the that the murder rate had remained static from uh, nineteen ninety three to twenty uh, to say twenty twenty, I don't. I think a hundred thousand people in the country are alive who would have been dead as a as a, you know if if if. If the crime rate hadn't dropped, maybe oh. other secular forces would have caused it to drop. You know, I, I don't want to just say this is because of, you know, policies that I liked. But, I mean, that's an amazing accomplishment. And it is in part because we did say, okay, well, we need to let our, the people that we grant the monopoly of force to, like, let them do their jobs and make sure that the courts aren't, you know, hostile to them doing their jobs and all of that. Um, and who who stood stalwartly against that? You know, it was it was sort of liberal chronology or liberal ideas about 
the injustice being done to, you know, to criminals that finally actually after a generation started to gain purchase. You know, I've said this, I feel ridiculous saying this again, but so long as these, these, these events happen, these shootings happen, you could, you're allowed to make the same comment, I think uh, each time if, if, if it's valid, what has changed in the time that, that, there's been this rise in in these uh, in these nightmare um, shootings that, that, as John says, you know, make us think there's something sick in the in the American soul. Um, and technology is just a huge part of it. I'm sorry, I've, I've said it before in the same terms. If you are troubled and of a certain age and a certain inclination today, you have a sort of ready-made digital starter kit available to you in your home on every device on every screen um there is a kind of hidden community out there um that can get you pointed in the direction uh uh that can sort of get you there step by step uh, uh on your way to arming up making plans finding like-minded people having an audience to brag to brag in front of and all the rest of it that that just didn't exist before and this is one of the you know we've always been the, the an extraordinarily free country but this is one of the changes and this is this is um one of the one of the sort of things we have not reckoned with generally a, a, having to do with internet technology which is just that yes it's made the world more connected uh certain people are not supposed to connect with each other uh, a, a non-digital society keeps certain people isolated from one another uh, so that they cannot sort of combine forces and encourage the worst. Because on average, people are not uh, inclined to do evil. So so those who do congregate in a sort of normal organic setting don't don't do this. But but we don't have that anymore. Well, and the people struggling with mental illness in particular what they can find online and the communities that encourage them online actually increase the likelihood of a break with reality, right? There's no there's no sort of balance in in what they receive. And they the ones who actually then go out into the physical world and act on that, on those uh, encouragements are are increasing in number. And I think Abe's absolutely right. I mean, we have a fascinating example of this horrifying, heartbreaking, chilling example of this very thing you're talking about, which is at Penn Station in New York uh, over the weekend, two men were arrested uh, for uh, making a terroristic threat and criminal possession of a weapon. Uh, One uh, is named Brown. I'm trying to find his first name. Christopher Brown from uh, Akabog, New York on Long Island. So he runs some kind of a Nazi listserv uh, and the uh, and has been like he is known to law enforcement. Let's just put it that way. And uh, he was nailed at Penn Station. The second person whom he met at Penn Station is a 22 year old Matthew Marr. Uh, a rain late Saturday. And he said, or either said to authorities or, you know, send an email or something saying that this guy found him online, found his listserv. Uh, they hadn't met before they were getting together at Penn Station. 
Um, he is not known to law enforcement. He has no record. He has nothing. It turns out he's a Jewish kid. He's a Jewish kid from the Upper West Side. Uh, Brown came in with a swastika. He said that you know his purpose was to shoot up a synagogue. Uh, and um, this kid apparently is the leading, the chief caregiver for his 93-year-old Holocaust survivor grandfather. So how on earth does a 22-year-old Jewish kid from the Upper West Side who is taking care of his Holocaust survivor grandfather and obviously very troubled in some fashion in relation to this family, whatever it is, how does he get to the point where he meets up with somebody in Penn Station with the plan to shoot up a synagogue online? Like that's there there 40 years ago, he couldn't have done there would have been no way for him to do this. There he couldn't have found the guy. You know, he maybe he could have found a pamphlet, you know, something like that. But but like turning something into something relatively actionable or you know active wouldn't have been possible. That I I I just want to say because it's an important point to make, and Christine, of course, is as a part part of her a brief as a writer and an intellectual is to talk about the the dangers that have been posed by onlinery. But I mean, of course, this goes both ways. Like I think also places like Facebook and all that have have made lonely people feel less lonely, have maintained connections for people over the, you know, with people that they didn't that they had lost track of, or, you know, gave them gave them a sense of a community and a society that maybe they they didn't have. And that's that's a Instagram, all this, the stuff that is double edged, there is the other edge, which is a UK group that monitors anti Semitic, you know, threats and violence is what actually led law enforcement in this country to those guys at Penn Station. So like, like, kind of not quite crowdsourcing, but they're monitoring this stuff online, and they get tips and they they alerted authorities. So yeah, that there's an example of the other side of the edge. Yeah. And to the, to the extent, by the way, that we, uh, the most important geopolitical story of our time that is, again, always is fading from the, from the woodwork, which is what role did China play in the, in the release of the, of the coronavirus? How did it happen? What was going on there? Had it not been for communities of amateurs finding each other online who were willing to do this like crazy detail work, looking at you know, Chinese reports and Chinese and all of that and aggregating things, that story might really have died. The the lab leak hypothesis, which again is not yet proved, but it certainly hasn't been disproved. And, you know, uh, the evidence suggests that it is much more, you know, the, the, the continuing effort to try to suggest that it was the result of a human eating a bat seems less and less and less the last the last effort the last go round at this which was a report that supposed supposedly proved this was sort of laughed out of court in a funny way so i'm just saying like the, this is you know uh, being online is now so big it's such a huge thing that saying it's one thing or another is like saying society is one thing or another it's another form of society now, maybe in the end, it's a bad form of society because these are, of course, weak bonds, not strong bonds, right? An online bond is a weak bond, not a strong bond. Well, uh, and the platforms people, where they, those bonds are formed reward certain kinds of behaviors over right. others. Right. So we want people to have strong bonds. People with strong bonds 
do better in life. Like that's we we don't want. I mean, you know, it's like would be better for the world in general. Because strong bonds mean that you are knit into a community, knit into a society, that it's, you know, that it's flourishing or lack thereof is actually a particular moment to you as a human being. It means you want to get involved civically and responsibly because you want to better yourself and the people that you love. And if your bonds are all weak, then all of that is theoretical and not 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 practical. Uh, let's pull back uh, and hear from our first sponsor. There's news and information constantly coming at us from all sides. With this barrage of information, it's difficult to stay up to speed with everything that's happening in the world. Whom can you trust to explain what's going on from a perspective that values both faith and freedom? That's where Acton Unwind comes in just as there's no other organization that brings you a perspective that values faith, liberty, and free enterprise like the Acton Institute. There's no other podcast that tackles the issues of the day in quite the same way as Acton Unwind. Every Monday, you'll hear from host Eric Cohn and experts from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty as they take you through the news of the week in a roundtable conversation, breaking down the issues and the stories that matter and demonstrating that the compatibility of faith liberty, and free economic activity in a way that's clear, concise, and entertaining. Whether it's about politics, religion, or culture, you'll get Acton's unique outlook on the world, connecting good intentions with sound economics as we promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. To subscribe to Acton Unwind, visit acton.org commentary or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Act and unwind an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. That's acton.org slash commentary to subscribe to the Acton Unwind podcast. Uh, do we have any uh, like naked, raw, stupid punditry to involve ourselves with? Uh, can, we, can we laugh at that? left Twitter right now? Like all the people like oh, declaring oh, their their that's not they even have political to... punditry. Yeah. Oh, I'm just enjoying it so much. Just making me laugh. So. All right. So there. let's 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 go through this. So like <laughs> 10 days or I don't even know when it was because all these techies had been fired. Tech people had been fired at Twitter. The story started moving around the Twitter sort of like all of civilization when the Heaven's Gate cult met on the top of that mountain in Arizona. I think it was Arizona. Like all of Twitter was going to collapse at midnight on Saturday or like Y2K or something like that. Was that last Friday? I can't even remember. Was it a week ago Friday? People are like writing goodbye messages to each other and all of that, like saying, okay, you know, I'll be on Instagram at this address. It's Find me on Mastodon. Been, yeah, find me on Mastodon, all of that. There is a hilarious, oh my God, such a hilarious story in the New York Times about Mastodon, this, this, this other site, which is much more unwieldy apparently so you have to be invited to be part of it. it's one of these things you'd be invited to be part of a group and adam davidson uh who will be well remembered as a new yorker writer who wrote a piece saying in 2018 that got like five million hits saying i'm pretty sure donald trump is finished and he will not be president in six months or something like that then like everybody went crazy and you know he's a graduate of the university of chicago which only proves that we people we maroons are often maroons um silly person but he runs a listserv basically for journalists 
on Mastodon. All these people moved over to Mastodon. So one of the people who moved over to Mastodon is Mike Pesca. Mike Pesca is actually on this podcast with our friend Jamie Kerchick. Jamie came on to talk about the podcast last week, not even mad. So Mike is uh, his one of his co-hosts, and Mike was did podcasting at Slate. And so he's basically like a middle-of-the-road mild liberal. And um, he posted on Mastodon this story in the New York Times about hormone treatments and puberty blockers uh, that are being administered as part of the effort to support gender-affirming, you know, essentially transgenderism, particularly in girls. And um, and the story said doctors are increasingly concerned that they're that they're that they're endangering girls' health with this. It's a very ginger story. It's unbelievably qualified and careful because obviously they were scared out of their minds to publish it. So Pesca posts it and says, you know, this seems very well reported. Whereupon a transgender journalist named Parker Malloy demands that he be blocked and punished for hate speech and uh, Adam Davidson, the Maroon from the Chicago Maroon then bans Pesca for a day and bans Parker Malloy for a day. Um, so guess what? Guess the, all this content moderation stuff isn't as easy as you think it is. You totalitarians who want to make sure that you don't have to hear anything that might, might punish you. Need you need a so lot of a... hall monitors to do yeah. that kind of work. Yeah. Don't you? Yeah. I, my favorite little story about the Twitter meltdown was when um, a, a journalist uh, accused Elon Musk of wanting to starve his employees because the free food in the cafeteria was now going, you'd have to pay a nominal fee so that he would be starving the employees that he hadn't already fired. So that was my favorite, my favorite overreaction. <clears throat> he's re he's restructuring is... his business. I mean, that's what you're allowed to do when you buy a company. My favorite. Was personally, you CNN. buy a company personally. He owns everything he owns the chairs he owns the coffee machine he's into it for these he's 40 billion dollars in debt from having bought this company he owns every jot and tittle of the place the carpeting the 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 brooms like it's crazy go ahead no i'm sorry oh, i was just about to say that my favorite was um via cnn <clears throat> with the headline was there's death in the air on Twitter. Um, <clears throat> it's only a guess, but it's an educated guess that everybody uh, who was in a position to report on this thing got terribly spun. They've cultivated a lot of sources inside Twitter. All of them exist in these sinecures of DI, DEI and environmentalism and compliance and international compliance and monitoring speech and harmonizing all the speech codes across the planet Earth. There's a um, tremendous bloat at this company. And those are all the people that disinformation reporters talk to. And then when they all got fired or left in a tiff, they ran screaming to the reporters that they've, the sources that they've been cultivated as, and said, the place is going to go down in 24 hours. Can't exist without me. And there were no competing voices <laughs> because these are the only people who they talk to. So that's what they ran with. They got terribly spun. It's very similar to the lab leak theory. Um, the um, idea being that the lab leak theory was tamped down by the journalistic enterprise almost uniformly because those are the sources they've cultivated inside the world of science and medicine. I, I, so this idea that Twitter is going to crash and die 
without these people. I mean, there's obviously a technical prospect that, you know, somebody had the secret sauce that was keeping all the servers spinning. And, uh, you know, apparently if you want to download your archive, now it's impossible. But I, I do want to say that two or three times in the last couple of years, I've attempted to download my my archive. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't tweet anymore, but I still have my, I still have my name on Twitter. And I thought, well, you know, I should probably download this archive because if I ever want to write a memoir, it's like a, it's a relatively good accounting of the years I spent between 2009 and 2019, since I was doing it on a, you know, psychotically on a daily basis, an hourly basis, a minute by minute basis. And I was never able to do it because it's too big. Never got it. Because there are like 150,000 tweets there. It never happened. So I don't know that it was ever the service of downloading your tweets was ever getting your archive was ever worked the way they claimed it worked. Um, I got it. I managed to make it work. It's totally useless. You just get a, a, a spreadsheet <clears throat> with all, you know, right. all your information and your metadata. I, mostly for you, metadata. You, I would just want to say that uh, I, it is to your credit that you don't have as many tweets in your archive as I do. <laughs> it is to your credit, Noah, that you were able to download it because your your archive well, I is did not that so preposterously huge. As in, uh, several years ago, as in uh, just as a an archive, you know, for yeah. archival purposes, because then yes. I immediately erased all that history. People are like, Ooh. "Oh no, that's that's." Uh, that's How an offense you. against yeah. journalistic propriety. It should exist yeah. as a record for, in, in, you know, just for posterity's sake. No, it shouldn't. This no, is it's ephemera. Let it no. die. No, it's there so that somebody, if you get into, if, if you, if you're in a controversy, somebody can go back to it's 20 there for confirmation here. Oh, well, you said in 2011. I'm almost positive well, I didn't do anything bad, but. You never know. No senator that's taken Not out of bad. Country. Just like, oh, look, you said this in 2011. Right. I mean, it might I be. I am enjoy. I do enjoy the retroactive application of standards that didn't exist at the time but, of the tweet. This yeah. is what's so great about the fact that they're doing this to Elon Musk, who is who has come in and disrupted not just one, but two major fields of endeavor: <laughs> the automobiles and space. Three. And now and, when they yeah, now oh, yeah, it's yeah, now social third, right. yeah, exactly. So now he comes into Twitter and they're like, "How dare he so much as rearrange the chairs at the conference room table?" And it's funny because they're so, the, the left actually was, and particularly during the Obama years, embraced the Silicon Valley disruption model. They told anyone who lost their jobs they should learn to code. I mean, they were absolutely insufferable about the message of what this transformation would be, particularly for Americans who were not college educated. They just shrugged and then like, get on with your lives. Look at us. We're in our glory here. Look what we're transforming the world. I will, and I, then it is, turned. This is, where, this is where I have sympathy for right-wing conspiracy theorists um, because the there was this sort of official establishment decision to turn on musk before this this was be before twitter if you recall when when he was first going going to host snl there was like this this for some reason that at the time totally baffled me sent shockwaves through the culture and through media entertainment media certainly that this was bad because he was for some um really unspecified reason he was bad i mean i think it was because he's rich um and then all this machinery kicks in to sort of take down the guy, try to take down the guy, attack him. Um, and you see it happen over and over again. And we're seeing it now, by the way, with Dave Portnoy, right, mm -hmm. uh, uh, of, of Barstool Sports. There's like this thing where 
this, these these institutions decide on these on these uh, 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 they're not 10 minute hates. They're like, you know, permanent, you know, they, they have to sort of keep someone in the dock. Um, and it's a very creepy thing. And it really shapes huge swaths of, of of the media experience and of news cycles because everyone decides somewhat arbitrarily that these are these are bad people that need to be destroyed and teams teams are are are, are divvied up and and it, it it just turns into something entirely having nothing to do with the person's well, uh, achievements or I have or, a theory or, on that it's entirely yeah. self-serving and it's one I've talked about on this podcast before self-serving from a commercial purpose is that they don't behave like they're miserable people I mean, to be a serious person today in a very puritanical sense is to act like you are beset by the forces of history. You have to dwell on the world's miseries at all times and in all things. And these people look like they're having a lot of fun while they're while they're Musk. changing. You're talking about Musk, Musk and Dave Portnoy. <clears throat> yeah. And that frustrates yeah. them. However, and, and maybe it's a response to this manic reaction that the left has had to him because he is a creature of the left, Elon Musk. Um, but he's sort of adopted of this very self-destructive persecution complex that the right has, I think, been very underserved by. Um, he's catering to a lot of people who believe that because this instant messenger service doesn't perform exactly the way they want it to perform, they are an aggrieved class. They are a persecuted class. And he's catering to that impulse in ways that I think are very unhealthy, psychologically unhealthy. Um, but it is a market, and he's sort of captured it. I don't think it's well, good for anybody. It's like sports betting. I, I totally agree with you. But he's being persecuted. Right. It's another well, case where he's I mean, being he persecuted. I mean, yeah. you know, he can but, afford but, it. It's like not yeah, of if course anybody, you know, like persecuting, uh, you know, the richest man in the world. You know, it's like Donald Trump complaining he's being OK, you're the most powerful man in the world. You're being persecuted like people who okay, are persecuted but... generally don't have the means to fight back. Musk is fighting back. Trump fought back, you know. But there is there. It's particularly uh, egregious to see the people, the same people who call themselves disinformation reporters or, or liberal journalists who think democracy is constantly under threat to literally peddle conspiracy theories. The one about Elon Musk from just yesterday was that Russian bots, you know, he so Elon Musk put this poll out there and said, should we let Donald Trump back on Twitter? So you he ended up saying, yeah, you can be back on Twitter. And Donald, of course, gave him the finger for it. But the left wing media was and basically mainstream media was like, this was a Russian bot operation. I'm like, can you just yeah. stop with the Russian bots? Like, stop. Like, but find some it, argument but, I mean, to make. <laughs> so Musk, it turns out, is a salesman. Like, I guess we've right. already yeah. he's not an engine. Like, yeah, I mean, he he's a salesman and he is doing. I mean, I still think this was an unbelievably stupid business decision that he made that might may well destroy him. But his idea is he is trying to get people to engage with Twitter, right? So he puts up a poll that says, should Donald Trump be come back or not come back? And there are 25 million votes or something. That's smart. Like, he's he's the head of Twitter. He's just trying to get people to involve themselves in Twitter. That's what he needs. And then, and then you get this ludicrous conspiracy theory about the Russian bots that is, by the way, not just being sold by you know, disinformation reporters, but Scott Galloway, this, you know, tech uh, investor guy, you know, I mean, I don't know, Ron Brownstein, weird people are bizarrely credulous about, it's just like you click on a on something that says yes or no. And, you know, in the space, you know, maybe Trump fans are doing it a hundred times a day. It wasn't, by the way, 
it was, I believe, pretty close. So it's not like it's not like the don't let him back on Twitter forces. It wasn't like one of those online polls in 2016 where Trump would win 90 percent of the vote or something. But I mean, this even there, because you're going back to the original sin, right, which is we need to explain how Trump happened. Aha. It was Cambridge Analytica, which used the do had. What did it do? It's like. They had posts on Facebook served up to people, you know, or uh, this thing, uh, Christine, I think you're the one who pointed out that somebody did some big report on, you know, the whole thing about how Facebook had been turned into a right wing disinformation machine because. But most people did actually, yeah. Podcasts were popular. So people were getting Ben Shapiro's podcast served up to them. But they didn't listen or they didn't click in or so I don't know what it was. There was a lot of hysteria over. Well, there have been several of these debunked. The the YouTube rabbit hole into radicalization has has been looked at recently by scholars. And they're like, eh, I mean, it might it might lead you slightly to like listen to a Ben Shapiro podcast. But that's not the same thing as becoming a radical, you know, right wing violent. And this, this this ties into what Abe was talking about before, which is. These things aren't happening on Facebook. They're happening on 4chan. They're hap- the bad stuff that happens happens in the dregs or the sort of the weird underground of the internet. It doesn't happen. This is like saying Time Magazine is radicalizing people if you're saying Facebook is radicalizing people. This is just a giant, you know, like in 1960s. Like this is just a giant kind of like department store of People or you know train station cum department store cum you know church it's just a lot of people in one place doing stuff and you know some things pop out and some things don't like it's 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 where people get into the weeds you by definition can't get into the weeds on Facebook in a weird way Facebook and Twitter and that stuff and Instagram. Uh, prevent you from getting into the weeds what they want you to do is have the dopamine surge of constantly shifting from subject to subject and interest to interest they don't want you delving delving is bad delving doesn't get you the advertising you want they they the dopamine rush is 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 adhd driving stuff not stuff that allows you to focus in and like that's right all, all right. the manifestos are on these other platforms. Yeah, and they're 190 right. pages long. Like right. they're not, right. you know, they're not like, uh, you know, 280 characters long. I mean, you know, they're endless, and they have footnotes, and you know, and all of that. So this stuff, but you know, it also it does have this quality of the vainglory of Silicon Valley and the, the 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 Twitter people which is they do think that where they work and what they do is the most important thing on the planet and what they were doing as some 25 year old graduate of you know UC Davis was the most important thing that ever happened like i'm on the team that investigates i don't know transgenderism and that team has 250 people on it like it's not i mean that's where they get seven seventy five hundred employees. All thing about tech was that it was this massive industry that didn't employ very many people. You know, so when you when you hear that Twitter has seventy five hundred employees, you have to sit there and go, what the hell? 
are these people doing? What is it that they're doing? That's a very large workforce. Well, and the irony, of course, being that the tech industry itself is very elite. And so when someone comes in and starts culling the elite from their positions of authority and power and, and you know, yeah. uh, often very high uh, paychecks, people get angry. I mean, look, I, has everyone forgotten Google? It, it's not just that people came in and, and you know, uh, took over vast industries with a handful of coders. It's that once they moved into cities where all this work was being done, they didn't they didn't behave like citizens in that way either. They always saw themselves as special and separate. Google used to bus them on these, you know, luxury buses to the Google headquarters so that, you know, God forbid they actually have to take mass transit. This that's actually part of the sort of the wonderful Schadenfreude I'm experiencing watching these extremely elite Americans act as if they are somehow being, you know, starved and beaten and I'm like, you people have no idea what the real world is you haven't been in it for a while well welcome to the real world welcome to where every, the rest of us live <laughs> every salary that is now paid by twitter elon musk is paying personally that's what people don't 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 understand so if he thinks that he can run this thing that he bought for a preposterous amount of money that he'll never be able to make back or make the debt payments on if he thinks that he can do it with a thousand people instead of seventy five hundred because he can't afford to pay seventy five hundred, that's that's what happens. This is not a publicly traded. It's not a utility. It's not a public. It's not a public trust. It's an individual person's property now, and he's going to go broke, and his the whole life is going to be ruined unless he has some radical success in remaking this thing so that it's smaller and fleeter and less um you know less kludgy i mean that's that's the way it is okay we need to pause yet again for our second and final sponsor of the day do you know only one in three americans believes we can fully exercise our free speech rights that's why fire is stepping up to protect freedom of expression for all americans no matter where you're from or what you believe, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE, knows free speech makes free people. FIRE will always be a principled, nonpartisan, nonprofit defender of your rights. Join the fight for free speech at www.thefire.org. Noah, you and I had a little, uh, like, uh, again, remember I said at the beginning of the podcast, I'm like destroyed because my dog was up in the middle of the night. Um, so I was very short tempered. Uh, you wanted to, you, you pointed out that, um, despite the fact that the, uh, Republican party, uh, had this, uh, long dark night of the soul on election night. Um, and by the way, the, uh, end result of the congressional, the Republicans taking the house, um, there was this kind of moment of weird pseudo optimism that Republicans were going to be able to claim that they had netted 10 seats at least. So now it looks like it's eight. So they, they, so they're, they're plus eight and they do have the majority by four seats. So that's on the low end of what people were even thinking maybe last week was going to happen. So terrible night, all of that. And not only do you have Rick Scott, thinking that he can challenge Mitch McConnell from for for the minority leadership of the party in the Senate after having lost all these Senate races as the head of the National Senatorial Campaign uh, Congress, whatever it is, the National Senatorial Money Committee. 
Uh, so he thinks that, but we have we have the Republican National Committee apparently on on track to reaffirming Ronna McDaniel's. She used to, by the way, be Ronna Romney McDaniel because she's Mitt Romney's uh, knee. And because Donald Trump didn't like Mitt Romney, she stopped using the word Romney in her name. Yeah, that was the first bad sign. Uh, that wasn't the first bad sign. Everything was a bad sign. But her her literally rewriting her own name so that Donald Trump would like her better. That's not totalitarian or anything. Anyway, uh, but she is apparently, um, th- there seems to be uh, an appetite possibly to con- retaining her as head of the RNC, uh, which will meet, I guess, in January. Uh, at its winter meeting to figure out who's going to be the next chairman of the RNC. Lee Zeldin is supposedly going to contest with her for it, the candidate for the former congressman candidate for governor of New York, who did unexpectedly well and is a very good fundraiser, like raised a lot of money, has very good contacts, has now has a, a much more gleaming reputation and is not considered a hostile anti-Trump person. So, no, what do you what do you make of this? Um, I don't know what kind of appetite there is per se, but there is definitely um, the appetite for entropy insofar as that exists. And you can kind of see it, which would just leave us with the Trumpy status quo of the party. Um, It would take actual work to de-Trumpify the party. And there doesn't seem to be much appetite for that. Um, Reince Priebus, who used to be the RNC chair, comes out in support of um, Ronald Romney McDaniel retaining her position. Um, despite the fact that she has objectively badly served the party in her role. She presided over the party in 2018 when the party lost the House. She presided over the party in 2020 when the party lost the presidency in the Senate. She presided over the party in 2022 when the party failed to capitalize on historic headwinds. And they don't come around every cycle. You need to maximize those gains and build on advantages and stock stock up a a majority reserve for bad cycles because they come too. And if she's retained in this role, I don't know if you can call the Republican Party a party anymore. The party exists for one particular purpose. It's a vehicle to get people elected. They're not ideological enterprises. They're not uh, cults around personalities. They're they have one job, and the job is to get people elected, and we, they don't do that job. The people who are responsible for not doing the job should assume some responsibility for their failure, fall on their sword, or at least have their heads lopped off by some very aggressive elements within the organization that want the organization to perform its sole function. Um, that doesn't exist, apparently. And if it doesn't exist, you have to ask yourself what the point of the Republican Party is now. The point of the Republican Party seems to me to be an effort on the part of a small faction to retain its influence and retain its its money, its power, and its reach and preserve and protect those interests, not the interests of voters, not the interests of of a traditional political party. Um, It's something else now. It's more like a social club. And I don't know what you would call that. We need to work on another name for it. But it doesn't seem to have any interest in advancing the political objectives of its voters. Uh, And that's something its voters need to be aware of. And if they have an ounce of self-respect and genuinely do believe in the things they say out loud, then there should be a revolt. And that we're not seeing that revolt 
is I think a, a symptom of the sickness that is is not going away and won't go away unless it's treated. Well, the structure of the RNC is very odd um, because it is uh, a little like the House or the Senate. The chairman of the Republican Party is voted on by 168 Republican national committeemen and women. Three are chosen from each state. And of course, programmatically, it was taken over by, you know, first of all, the president, whoever the president is, gets to pick his RNC chairman like that's or his party chairman. That's always been, you know, Obama had Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Uh, Trump had uh, Ronna Romney McDaniel. Um, and uh, so but the, these committeemen aren't representative of anything. They are. Once again, like I said about McConnell, they're like the people who, you know, order the 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 coffee from Dunkin' Donuts at the local county meetings and like do the cleanup and do all the scut work. And then if they're lucky, they get voted. They end up becoming like one of the three committeemen. Uh, so are they representative of the Republican electorate? No, they're they're representative of like people who join clubs and want to rise in the club, like you like you said. Um. But basically, the party was restructured to be uh, something. Ron Romney McDaniel's job as RNC chairman was not to piss Trump off. That was her job. She was supposed to do everything in an equilibrium manner to satisfy Trump. And basically, her 24 hours a day, what she was thinking was, did I do this to piss Trump off? If I do that, will it piss Trump off? And she's still kind of there. We know where she is after the election, but she basically 21 and 22 were exactly the same thing. You know, do you say, no, we really have to endorse Peter Mayer, even though we voted for impeachment because he's the only one who can win in this district? Or we got to leave Jamie Herrera Butler alone. She's the only one who can win in her district. No, because that would have pissed Trump off. And Ronna Romney McDaniel changed her own name to satisfy the whims of the Godhead. Yeah, and if you don't take out the false priest in the you know the i you know among the idol worshippers, uh, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna remain in a very that's all she was, that's all she meant, that's all that was her job. Job now is to try to get an, a president elected in twenty. Maybe she thinks that should be Trump. It appears that a lot of people don't think it should be Trump. All right, we'll leave it there. Uh, we are uh, podcasting tomorrow, and then we will be taking a break for Thanksgiving and the day after Thanksgiving. And uh, So uh, be here tomorrow or be square. Uh, for Abe, Christine, and Noam, John Podhortz, keep the candle burning.